Hey guys, and welcome back to the Insight channel. In the crosshairs today, we have Ian Smith, the Integrity Commissioner of ESIC. He sits down with us for us to pick his brain. Uh, but before we get started, uh, how's everything going? Um, I can imagine being the head of ESIC can be quite stressful, but how's everything going? It's going, it's going well, thank you. I mean, you're right to identify it as, as stressful and challenging, but I would say that in, you know, in the way that any any job that you put your life into that has any kind of public facing or community facing role is you know is is going to be stressful but but that's okay because you know there's an underlying mission to make uh, esports uh, have integrity or maintain integrity um, so i feel like there's a good thing but also to add to its kind of growth and professionalism and increased commercialization so i think we're in a good space there's a million things i'd love to be doing better and more but uh but you know I, considering the starting point a few years ago I'm, I'm very very happy with our progress awesome and so before we kind of get into like the the meat and potatoes of maybe some of the core uh questions um mm -hmm. i want to start with maybe your background and your role in ESIC and what that role plays in the modern days i think honestly a lot of people don't actually understand what ESIC does and that is something i want to cover just first and just allow yourself to like explain what your role is and what you do but starting with your background you have come up through traditional sports uh mostly cricket what was your actual original reason for coming into esports and specifically counter-strike yeah, so I'd spent all of my legal career in traditional sport, as, I, as you said, primarily in cricket, but across a range of sports. From about 2010 onwards, particularly, there was a heavy emphasis within cricket on integrity issues and in particular match fixing. So I've always dealt with disciplinary issues around behavior on the field, off the field, all of this. But we, we had a series of scandals in cricket back in 2010 um, that forced me in a sense to become an expert in an area where I had some interest but no you know like genuine deep dive expertise and that was the relationship between betting on cricket in this instance or betting on sport and the sport itself what what is that relationship and how does it serve or undermine the sport depending on on you know how how you look at it and interestingly, I, I worked for the Federation of International Cricketers Associations up until the World Cup in Australia 2015. Um, and for anybody who knows cricket would, would probably understand that was a very turbulent period politically within cricket uh, for, for a bunch of reasons that aren't worth reciting, but, but effectively made me decide to get out of my role as it was at the time. And... I, was, I wasn't twiddling my thumbs. I had a, a range of consultancies, but weirdly out of the blue through a friend who is involved in the sponsorship side of esports called me up one day and said, hey, you know, we're, we're having a problem reconciling the profile and numbers of esport with the lack of interest from top line sponsors. And uh, that may sound like a weird intro, but the connection is, 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 is really obvious once you think about it. And this revolved around the acquisition of ESL by the uh, Modern Times Group in Scandinavia when they bought that. Um, and they were in the process of acquiring DreamHack, which was their second esports um, acquisition, which was obviously a lot smaller than, than ESL. 
But what they found with ESL is that you had these giant numbers. I mean, going back at that time, 2015, I think ESL Play and ESEA had about 5.8 million active users. And that, you know, in any sport, that kind of number is mind-blowing. Um, and so you had this demographic that looked incredible. And in any traditional sport, that demographic would have meant that 30 to 40% of your sponsorship portfolio would have been big non-endemics, like absolute top tier. You know, your your Visas, MasterCards, Amexes, your Emirates, your Honda, your, your Toyota, you know what I mean? Like Panasonic, really, really high level. But what eSports e had, uh, to the dismay of the commercial guys at, at MTG, was 3 to 4% non-endemics and more or less all second tier. Uh, to give an example, um, instead of having Pepsi, they had Mountain Dew. And you know what I mean? There was all these kind of sub-brands. People were starting to look seriously, but none of the big boys were prepared to commit um, any kind of uh, serious commitment to eSport in those days. And one of the reasons, there were multiple reasons for that, but one of the reasons that came through this investigation was the lack of regulation, the lack of professionalism, the lack of governance in the eSports space. In other words, the big brands were not prepared to put their brands at risk in an area that they used to regularly describe, you've probably heard it as, the Wild West. There was this, this consideration that putting a, a hundred-year-old high-value brand like Coca-Cola into a risky environment like esports would be suicidal. And so the money was, was just nowhere near and the interest nowhere near what it should have been. And so that was a cue for me to be engaged initially by MTV to do a sort of governance integrity audit of the esports industry. And I, I would say I was twiddling my thumbs, but I certainly had capacity for that kind of thing. And I found it really interesting because prior to that, I have, I've been a gamer all my life. Since long before you were born, I was playing, you know, Asteroids and Xevious and Ms. Pac-Man and all this in arcades in the 1970s. Um, but I've never been a competitive gamer um, all the way through every console you can imagine. PC, I've reluctantly played against other people occasionally because I'm too slow and old and, you know, the whole thing. But I loved gaming and I thought I knew what esports was, but I was wildly wrong. I mean, in my head, I thought it was the odd FIFA competition online between a couple of people. And so all the the games that were being thrown at me in, in the discussion about this were things like Counter-Strike, League of Legends, Dota 2. None of this meant anything to me. Um, but fortunately, uh, MTG were prepared to give me a couple of months, so it was a three-month period towards the end of 2015, to dig into what esports was. I was lucky enough to go to the major, the, the Dota major in Frankfurt and various other events and did a really deep dive into the industry. Of course, even now, 2023, I'm still learning. But that allowed me to, to kind of realize or work out that this was not an industry like traditional sport, that the word esports was, in, and I still believe this, is, is an unfortunate name because it gives you this idea that, 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 it, that it works like traditional sport and it doesn't. And so I, I was looking at a very strange industry but there's always an aha moment when you kind of get it you know there's a um a bit like 
the old magic eye pictures, you stare at them and blur your eyes and you can't see anything. Suddenly it comes into focus and you can see the dolphins and the sky. And I had that moment back in sort of October, November, 2015. And as a result, I was able to draft a, an integrity threat assessment, which basically identified things that I think will be obvious to anyone in the community because there's cheating to win and there's cheating to lose. And the cheating to win stuff, everybody would know about at that time and still know about. So that would be your basic software hacks, your aimbots, your wall hacks, you know, the, the usual cheating by just bringing in alien software to give you an advantage over your, your uh, opponents. This is long before there was stream sniping or that kind of cheating, other ways of cheating. Then there was doping which I'd have to say was was very much around rumors because it overlapped with that Cloud9 interview going back to 2015. Um, very, very unfortunate um, set of circumstances. And, and I, we can talk about more about doping if you want to later. But And then the other was the basic DDoS attack, you know, kind of uh, online interference. But what wasn't, what existed then in terms of the cheating to lose was the iBuy power scandal, exposed by Richard Lewis and the work that Richard did on that. And then the, the sort of allied Epsilon case and, and various others where you were talking about match fixing for really Mickey Mouse amounts, primarily on the skins betting markets. And skins was a total revelation to me. I mean, bear in mind that at, at this point I'd been buried in sports betting for six or seven years at that point. And suddenly I see this entire betting market that nobody in the traditional betting world even knew existed. It was mind boggling to find this totally unregulated, just insane environment, high value environment of um, skins betting. And what was going on in that skins market, we identified um, in early 2016, at least 150 Counter-Strike matches that were fixed uh, on the skins markets during 2015, at least, probably more. But that's what we could we, we, we were able to identify purely from betting evidence. And so the, 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 what would normally happen when you do this kind of report? You'd say, look, here's your threats. Here's, here's the problem. This is what you're currently doing as a sport. And this is what we recommend that you need to do as a sport. And you would take that to a governing body. So if you did it in football, you'd go to FIFA. If you did it in cricket, you'd go to the ICC and say, hey, guys, this, this is what you need to do. But in esports, there was nowhere to go. There, there was and is no you know, competent governing body that you could kind of go, hey, guys, this is what you need to do. And the only thing you could do was go to these individual TOs and publishers um, and in those days, more or less the only publisher doing anything was Riot and kind of go, hey, you know, you need to fix this. And I never thought that was a satisfactory solution. So the idea was floated um, by MTV exe executives, sorry, MTV, MTG ex executives saying, well, we need to involve other TOs. We can't, this can't just be an ESL dream hack thing. We need the community, everybody to get involved. And that was what led to the setting up of the uh, uh, Esports Integrity Co Coalition as it was then. 
And I had I didn't think I'd be involved in this, right? I I, I thought I'd be handing this over to somebody in esports. To uh, and I would go back to my comfortable world of traditional sport, but then I was asked to set it up, and again I thought, okay, fine, I'll, I'll set it up and then hand it to somebody in esports. But here I am, you know, approaching eight years later, um, still doing it for for a lot of reasons. The, the main one being that I really enjoy, I, I like the esports community. I, I wouldn't go as far as saying, I mean, there's some games I love. I like watching Counter Strike. I love Rainbow Six. I think it's an amazing game. I'm pretty fond of Valorant. As you can tell, the type of game I'm after, right, is that I can't watch Dota or League because uh, you've got to play that for 500 hours before you can watch it at any reasonable level, in my view. Um, so I can't, I get the meta, but I, I can't watch those games. But that, it's not the fact that I'm, I like the games. It's that the community itself, broadly speaking, is a wonderfully innovative uh, community or that moves very very quickly, that uh, that is is welcoming as well. It, it's a nice environment, particularly if you've worked in traditional sport where things are very stodgy. You know, it's like working walking in molasses. There are hierarchies. There are, you know, whereas in esport you can say let's do something, and three weeks later you can do it. In traditional sport you say let's do something, and four years later you're still trying to do it, um, and. Uh, that was an irresistible challenge to me as a lawyer in the integrity space was like, you spend your whole career moaning, I, I did, uh, for 20 years about how badly sport is run um, and how ineffective most of what is done is. And then somebody, or in this case, a community comes along and says, hey, you're, you're such a smart ass, you do it. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I will. And I, I've, I've loved that challenge. And, you know, I'm not pretending that we've succeeded at, at every level by any means. There's a lot still to do. But that that has sustained me for the last, uh, you know, seven and a half, eight years. So, sorry, long story short, um, it's, it's an interest in sports integrity that became an interest in esports integrity over, over a period. Um, mm. I, I am pretty much obsessed with sport being fair that when two people or two teams play against each other, everybody's doing their best to win, that they're not motivated by other factors. You know, there's not a, to, a reason to lose or to play poorly or to manipulate results. And unfortunately, betting for all the good stuff that it brings in terms of engagement, sponsorship, dollars, you know, all the good stuff, there is this element that it encourages people to go for the easy money. Um, by by manipulating outcomes, and I'm I'm somewhat obsessed by preventing that by by making sure that that has as little impact on genuine competition as possible. Yeah, and um, something that I'd want to talk about later is just like how you'd actually prevent that. Um, yeah. But firstly, yeah, absolute world worst. Twenty fifteen, honestly, twenty fifteen wouldn't wouldn't have even be the wildest of the West. It it was still no. much worse before. Um, yeah. and I think it's interesting looking at like when you were saying 
we can get stuff done quickly. And yeah, in one part that is esports moving fast. But I think from my perspective, that's also the lack of governance and the ability to push stuff through quicker. Whereas in traditional sport, you'd have a lot more checks and balances when you do stuff. Whereas in esports, it's just like, you're good with this, you're good with this. Okay, let's go. And that is kind of what esports is. And that may be also an issue. Um, But that's, I think, a topic for another day. And moving then from kind of like, what, eight years ago to now, um, how has that narrative shift to the modern day? And are your aims still similar? And you've just mentioned doping there as something that you were involved in. Um, From my perspective, in the last year and a half, the only interaction I've had with Isik is doping because I was working with a team at the Paris Major in Counter-Strike. And one of them got pulled in for doping like not pulled in for doping but got pulled in to do a drug test like yes. all that stuff that right now is the only thing i've seen from isik in the last year and a half yes so how has your narrative sh- shifted then in these last recent years and is like doping more of something that you're looking at no uh, in fact doping has always been a separate category because what what we did, I obviously identified as a problem, but this is based purely on on rumor, speculation, and to some degree on confessions by various players, particularly in that that period around sort of 2014-15, around the use of Adderall and Ritalin. So what we did at Katowice 2016, which was a, a far broader um, tournament, if 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 you remember, than just Counter Strike, it had league, it had a bunch of stuff, right? We had 400 players of various games, top top tier players in the room, uh, f- filling out a survey, which we followed up at every drugs test since. So we've been testing since then, March 2000 or February 2016, at, at most of the majors, at all the big ESL ones, IEMs and so on. And we surveyed the players at every single event. And in those early days, the primary question that we were asking them is, if you were concerned, you know, are you concerned about doping? And if if you're concerned, what do you think we should be looking for? What are you concerned about? Um, and we took the view that we should be aimed at, uh, focused on what genuinely might give a player an advantage over another player. What would constitute actual cheating? So we were never looking at being the moral guardians of the game in terms of controlling recreational drug use or marijuana or anything like that, particularly because, of course, most North American players have access to legal weed anyway. And so we were very focused on, you know, what what are the drugs that are actually problematic from a cheating perspective? So we firstly, we surveyed the players. Then we put together an ad hoc medical committee, pharmacologists, doctors, um, to asking the very simple question, if I'm a crooked esports player and you're a crooked doctor and I want you to give me something to make, to give me an advantage, what are you going to give me? And out of those two collaborations and, and consultations, we created the prohibited list. And then we created a policy or procedure, uh, a code, an anti-doping code that is esports specific. So it's of course, it incorporates aspects of the wider code or sports code, traditional sports codes, but you're dealing with a totally different activity. Um, and ours is very player focused. It's it's aimed at protecting the players and the community from uh, 
bad medicine and from cheating. And so the testing procedure that you would have witnessed is a very, very different, different way of doing it than in traditional sport. We don't treat the athletes like criminals. Uh, you know, we, we don't follow them around and, and assume that they're cheating. We test at these events. Most players who make the quarterfinals through the final will all be tested at least once, sometimes twice. And my point in this is that since in all of that time, since 2016, we've had not one positive test that is in violation of the uh, anti-doping code. We've had God knows how many survey results that indicate at a meta level that, that there's no real problem, right? There's nothing alarming in the feedback that we receive from players. And we've run education across the board uh, that's been very, very well received over all of these years. So I'm not saying that doping is not a problem. I'm pretty confident in saying that doping at high, at tier one in Counter-Strike and to some extent Dota and to some extent League is not a problem. We, we've, the only issue we've ever had is a few players getting a little bit close to the allowable level of substances like MDMA, uh, where they've been out clubbing, <laughs> um, in particular used ecstasy, say, the night before um, an event. Uh, I mean, you know, you're talking about young men, right? They, they can yeah. be dumb as shit sometimes. And this this is what uh, we, we've encountered. And then we respond to that in a way that is about the athlete's health and their, the, the jeopardy they're putting themselves in. I mean, in one case, a couple of players were literally micro micromoles away from a two-year ban um, for doing something as stupid as popping a pill in a club the night before. Um, and these are, you know, tier one famous players. And it, that's just stupid, right? We, we all recognize that. So we deal with that with the players um, and then with the team ownership uh, management in a, in a quiet way because, you know, we want what's best for everybody. It's not best for esports for for these players to be exposed and banned for something that actually had no impact on the game they played um but is is a lifestyle issue that that they need to address if they want a long healthy career because they came bloody close to not having one but what what we don't know and and this is my area of concern is that outside of blast and esl uh, or efg as it is now nobody's testing right that that to me is dangerous and I'll, I'll tell you why i mean i think there are two reasons firstly in certain game communities and I, I hesitate to to highlight anyone in particular but but the rumors are most rife and these are these are heavy rumors this isn't vague speculation by nobodies this is like from the top down call of duty is according to its own professional players, riddled in Adderall and Ritalin. They're popping it like Smarties. Now, of course, Activision, as far as I'm aware, I'm pretty confident in this, have never actually tested this. Um, they, they've not done anything in the Call of Duty League or any level below that. We can extend that to more or less every other game community is that 
we can be confident that at tier one Counter-Strike and major level Dota and LEC, LCS level uh, league, that, that those guys aren't dope. I'm reasonably confident, certainly not in competition. But everything else, we genuinely have no idea and neither does anyone else, except the guys taking the drugs or supplying them. And so second tier, third tier, uh, and, and the top tier of every other game, we, we don't know. So my view is that the, the industry is not doing enough on the anti-doping front to really counter the threat of it. Um, that, that the efforts we're making are helpful within certain game communities, but they're by no means the answer. Uh, in my view, a lot more needs to be done. Just to reassure the industry, the community, that, that these guys aren't cheating, that, that people aren't uh, gaming, uh, the, the, the fact that doping control is so lax in everything below the level of what ESIC is doing. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the biggest issue of like it comes to a stage where there's only so much of your like sphere of influence can target. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I I've heard some. It's bad also stuff. very expensive. You know, you, yes. you have to bear in mind, Freddie. Sorry that that the cost of testing is high. You know, to test at an event like let's say IEM Cologne um, is in the region of seven eight thousand euros. It, it's not cheap. And you can't, out of competition testing, of course, of going to, say, a team house or a player's house to test him out of competition is, of course, you're looking at six, seven hundred euros per test. So, you know, who's going to pay for this, right? Uh, this in, in an industry that is always struggling commercially. So you've got to be practical as well as uh, not. So, But you would think that the big leagues, uh, in particular the Activision Blizzard leagues, uh, who, you know, aside from Riot and then possibly Rainbow Six, uh, Ubisoft-run leagues, are those publisher-run leagues could afford to test, but they don't. And and that's, you know, in my view, there's there's no interest in the publisher to expose the primary players of its primary product as drugs cheats. Where's their incentive to do that, right? Yeah. Um, okay, perfect. So I kind of see that as like the, the intro phase to now some of like the, the case by case things I want to cover that sure. ESIC have uh, like looked at over in Calstruck over the years. Um, yeah. And I feel like it's only right starting at the NA match fixing scandal because mm -hmm. today uh, is the two year anniversary of the last update on the yeah. NA match fixing investigation. Um, yeah. And it was this time two years ago that some people did get banned, but I think right. it was like three in total. One yep. of them's back playing on a top team. Uh, and yeah, so there was, and, and those bans were pretty much because TeamSpeak logs were on Twitter and it was like, we cannot yep. not ban these guys. Uh, yep. In that investigation, you stated that 34 people were being investigated. Yes. Um, and I have good source that you were also investigating over like over a hundred people at this time as well. And that were, there was like hundreds of investigation yeah. and the whole NA Counter-Strike scene was thrown up in fire with yeah. you guys, the Canadian police, the FBI. Yep. What happened? <laughs> what happened was, well, a bunch of things. So I'll try and kind of pull them all together. But basically what it comes down to is credible evidence. So the, 
the allegations that we received, I believe, absolutely justified um, an, an investigation across a range of fronts. I mean, you know, to you, you've got to understand that across the original, I'm trying to remember the number, but I think you're right. I think it was 34 um, players was predicated on the betting evidence that we received being verified by the uh, the betting operators themselves who could say, firstly, yes, these bets were placed, um, but also much more importantly, by who, from what region. So in other words, we need more granular client information from the betting operators to tell us, to enable us to connect the players to the people placing the bets. So let me let me step back. There are generally three phases to this. Generally, you, you get an indication of betting activity that indicates a fix okay and we had a lot of that a lot of betting that indicated that the outcome was known before the bet was placed or when the bet was placed that it had been bought somehow that it had been arranged and this happens all the time as you can imagine we get a lot of this evidence that is what triggers if it's credible that's what triggers an investigation what you then do uh, generally as a first step is look at the match action to see if the, the players played in a way that appears to favor the bad betting. The, um, so, you're, for example, if, if it looks like the fix was that the team, that the favorites in a best of three were going to drop map two, they were going to lose map two, you look at map two, and see if the way they played could credibly be said to be deliberately trying to lose that map, right? So you get an expert analysis that looks at the matches. You then, uh, if that's strong enough to justify further investigation, you go to the betting operators that were affected by the bad bets and you try and find out who placed the bets, where were they? How do you connect those people placing the bets to the to the players who we now suspect played to the bets. And so you're right. I mean, of the cases that that we were able to prosecute, we had other direct evidence. Where this case fell down, and I'll make a, a quick aside about the law enforcement involvement here, is that when when law enforcement get involved, and, and I'd say particularly the United States uh, and, and the FBI in this in this instance, they have a very different priority to ESIC. We, we are regulating the players, the sport, the participants. What they are primarily interested in is finding out which betting operators were offering markets illegally to United States residents and citizens. Okay, so what they are interested in is how are these guys placing bets from places where betting is illegal? You know, let, let's say they lived in Michigan, for example. There was no sports betting in Michigan, so how were these guys placing bets? And who were they placing bets with? They want to prosecute the, the betting operators who are operating illegally in the United States. So a lot of the to and fro between law enforcement and ESIC on many cases is much more about the betting operator than about the players. Because you'll appreciate that in many cases, being somewhat pejorative about this, the players are nobody to the police. They're not high profile people. They're not sexy. You know, law enforcement only 
generally worldwide pursue cases where there's a public, what they perceive to be a public interest. Um, and so, and the other thing is, they are prohibited by the rules, their rules of evidence from providing anything back to us, right? So whatever they find out, they can't tell us. Um, they can't provide us that until there's a trial. The only time we get to see what they found is when there's an actual trial, a criminal trial, and the evidence is prevent, presented at the trial. So what happened in, in the vast majority of the MDL case, the, the old uh, North American cases, was that the betting operators who were operating illegally in Canada and, and the United States at the time would not cooperate in the provision of uh, evidence to us. A lot of them were Bitcoin operators with no license at all, uh, many of them. Uh, and so whilst we were able to contact probably four or five of them, none of them were prepared to provide us with the necessary client information for us to link the players to the bet. The match evidence in terms of expert evidence, where we could find the demos, which was not by, by no means in every case, the expert evidence that we received back from uh, CSGO analysts was, how should I put this, inconclusive. In other words, most of them were prepared to say, look, this looks dodgy, but this could just be bad play. You're looking at a level of player where mistakes are, you know, you're not looking at simple where, you know, he misses a shot and you're like, oh, hell, that's weird. This is a level of player where the sort of mistakes that indicate deliberate or rather the sort of incidents in a game that, that indicate poor play might just be poor play, not deliberate attempts to, to undermine the game. And so there were very few cases where the dem the examination of the demos where they were available came back conclusively saying, yeah, th these guys are trying to lose, right? They're, they're looking at, they're, they're looking away, they're failing to take shots, they're exposing themselves. The, the, the sort of typical evidence you get in a CSGO case. And so by the time we felt we had enough potentially on about probably another six players to actually proceed based on betting evidence uh, that we had and the match play. All those players were no longer actually active in the scene at all. And the remaining who were active were ones where we simply did not have enough to, to, to prosecute the cases. Those cases remain open, and as silly as that sounds, we are still hopeful that relationships with these betting operators improve to the point where they feel comfortable giving us the betting evidence that we've been asking for for the last two years. Um, and that's an ongoing mission because clearly we're trying to engage with as many betting operators as possible. And that that is improves every week, you know, where, where we enter into new MOUs with betting operators. But the guys who operate in the crypto space, uh, we, apart from one who we deal with frequently, uh, are just, they have no interest in engaging with us. It, it's, um, 
because they jeopardize their legal position or illegal position in the United States. Nobody wants the FBI banging on their door. Um, and any indication that they, that they accepted customers and bets from the United States in that period um, would expose them to criminal prosecution in the United States. End of story. So yeah, um, it, 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 I wouldn't say that I was personally, potentially personally naive in expecting the prima facie evidence to be backed up by the real evidence of betting operators. I, I, I genuinely thought that we would receive that evidence willingly, uh, but, but we never did. Um, and obviously now I think differently about it, but it's easy to say in retrospect that um, uh, it looked open and shut and still does. Look, I still completely believe that these cases were fixed. Um, I, 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 I'm, I put my mortgage on the fact that these matches were fixed, but that's a very, very different thing from actually prosecuting and banning players uh, based on my belief as opposed to rock solid evidence that you could that, that would stand the scrutiny of external bodies, particularly, I think the point being in the United States, which I'm sure you'd uh, appreciate, is the litigious nature of, of society and the way that the legal system operates. You get something like this wrong, and some guy sues you for loss of earnings over the next God knows how long, loss of reputation, you know, that sort of exposure would bankrupt ESIC in one case. So it's, it's not something that we can do on a whim. I hope that makes sense. Okay, there's so much to unpack from that. And I've written it all down because I'm just like having to keep on remembering. Um, of course. Okay, so I first want to take identify the, the whole betting companies not responding. Because yeah. I'll be honest, that seems like such like it's it's like that means that anyone who realistically is this and is a pro player can go, oh, I can bet on some bookie gambling site. I can match fix on that and nothing's going to happen. Right. Uh, is that is that genuinely the case that we live in? No, no, that, that isn't the case. Um, so let me tell you why. Is Firstly, the, the number of places where you can now open an account and bet as a player without being exposed as a player literally reduces every single day. So we work in the background with, multiple betting operators who are very, very keen to not have players betting on their own matches or even on their own game, you know, a, a Counter-Strike pro betting on Counter-Strike. And so the, the, the scale of information sharing means that the ability to open an account as a Counter-Strike pro now is severely reduced. But let's say they could. I was gonna say yeah. I, I'm not talking about like the betways three six five. I'm talking yeah. about those Bitcoin, the Ethereum, the like underground yeah. stuff which you have found yeah. the issues with in yeah. this case. That's what I'm more talking about. No, no, I, I understand that, but that's also a realm that we're working in because most of these sites may start off in that dodgy world, but they all have the ambition, aspiration to kind of legitimize themselves over time because that's how you make more money. So anytime they get into a licensed regime, those obligations ramp up in terms of know your customer obligations, anti-money laundering measures, the whole thing. So there's an upward trend in that. But you're right. I mean, of course, there are still these operators out there where if a player was able to open an account, 
he might be able to place bets that he can manipulate. He might be able to. But of course, those operators operate exactly the same way as every other operator. (laughs) They're not they're not there to be ripped off. They, they have their own integrity systems. And if, if a bet looks suspicious to an individual operator, they take action. They either void the bets, don't pay out, limit the markets, you know that. So it's not like there's this free for all available out there, like some sort of money machine, because those guys have their own integrity uh, procedures and, and operations. Then there's another layer that has improved really dramatically now. Uh, that that means that this is less likely. So there are companies, um, Starladder uh, is an uh, Starladder. I'm not talking about Star Lizard, Sports Radar, Bet Genius. All of these and others, the Global Lotteries Monitoring Service, the um, International Betting Integrity Association. All of these organisations, including ESIC, operate uh, a monitoring a market monitoring system that looks across every operator that they know exists. And this includes these guys that are in the, the dark gray black market areas where we all monitor odds movements that uh, raise integrity concerns when certain things happen that are not expected to happen. So the way betting works at every operator, whether this is one of your dodgy guys or, or, or Bet365, right, at, at, at the top of the tree, is that they have a very clear understanding of the way in which betting on any market should unfold. How much money and, you know, who's betting up or low. And they monitor this algorithmically. Uh, and the more data you have, the narrower the band of activity that you expect the betting to follow. And anything that pops outside of that band immediately raises a flag. And the integrity or compliance person at that operator will look at that and try and determine what it means. Why why are these bets falling outside of our parameters? And then, then they decide what action to take. What they do in addition to that, so now you're looking at monitoring, I don't know, probably close to 600 operators globally uh, with Sport Radar, for example, or Star Lizard or Bet Genius, is not only is the affected bookmaker seeing this anomaly, but so is everybody else who's monitoring this which immediately means that the markets get adjusted according to the information. So if it looks, for example, like there's unusual betting on, going back to my earlier example, the favorites losing map two in a best of three, every single operator who's part of this system will determine what to do with that uh, bet, with that market, with the map two markets. And they will then void the bets, limit the bets, you know, whatever. Uh, so th- there's a far better exchange of information now than existed at the time of the MDL uh, bets or, or any other match-fixing scandal. And that gets better literally every day. So the chances of a player getting away with the sort of behavior are literally reducing on a daily basis. Okay, so like that that's more, in my opinion, identifying the problem. Yeah. and 
that sign that you were able to do with the NA match fixing. Like yes. you identified there were problems. Yeah. However, it's then going from identifying to yeah. to making the bans. And obviously you said six players went to Valorant. That's sure. also something that is like, how is that possible? And I know yeah. you guys have said previously that you wanted to make a universal integrity commission. So yeah. kind of like maybe in like one part of the question, like if someone goes to Valorant, is that them just being like, okay, grand. And then, so now once we've identified this, this information and all the, the match fixing odds, and you've said I, like, I could put my mortgage on it. Yeah. What happens? Like, is yeah. it like, is there, is it like, yeah, like what happens from there then? Okay. Yeah. And, and you're right. So firstly, to deal with the Valorant point, um, at the start of the Valorant competitive uh, scene, we entered an agreement with Riot uh, via which uh, any match fixing conviction, or in fact, any cheating conviction in CS will carry over into Valorant. So that, that, that you know, is something that's been covered at a policy level. But the point you raise about, okay, what happens? And the answer is that if the match evidence is strong enough, in my opinion, as commissioner, to justify the prosecution of a player, to, uh, to justify the, the issue of a notice of charge to a player, then we will do it. I think the problem with, for example, the, uh, the, the NA case is that many the vast majority of demos were long gone. Uh, so we didn't have the match evidence. And where we did have the match evidence, the conclusions of the CSGO experts that we rely on were, were not good enough, in my opinion, to justify prosecution. They were, they were not, they didn't reach a standard that I felt safe in prosecuting. But in many cases, the examination of the demo by experts does give me enough confidence to issue a notice of charge to say yes this was match fixing so even if we're in a situation where we can't get evidence from directly from the betting operator as i've described i still have confidence enough to uh, to prosecute so of course it's imperfect but exactly the same consideration applies in in all sport is you've got this awful gray area where as somebody involved in it, you kind of know that, that the player fixed, but you don't have sufficient confidence. I'm talking 60% or above that the evidence that you have is conclusive enough to effectively take someone's career away from them. I, I believe we need a high burden of proof. And sadly, in many cases, we, you just can't reach that high burden. So yes, there are opportunities for for crooked players in esports and all sports, but that is becoming less and less through cooperation between sport and betting, rather than through detection of match action, which is a very very unreliable way of saying that something was fixed. You you need the match action to match okay. the betting, and you'll appreciate. I, I probably get three or four complaints a week from punters from spectators from from fans saying oh here's a gif of of this guy missing or <laughs> hesitating on a headshot or whatever he must be fixing and you're like no because when you look there's no betting evidence 
So nobody bet on this happening. So it's yeah. not fixing. It's just bad play. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and um, another thing on that stuff is that you you know as a caster how good these guys are. I think a lot of fans actually don't understand how good these pro players are and how fast they are. And what I mean by that is that I get sent no problem. I get sent gifts of uh, an incident in in a match at let's say thirty frames per second where they say, oh, he's definitely cheating. Look how his cursor moves from here to here instantly. And you're like, there was nothing instant about that. No. If you look at this at 250 frames or 500 frames a second, you can see the cursor moving because he's that good. It's just because you're rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that the player's rubbish. You know what I mean? I don't think people understand how fast these guys are, yeah. how good they are. Um, you know, with jump shots, you're like, this is crazy. You know, we, we're measuring. I, I've, I've got a bunch of stats early on for StarCraft two players that has them in 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 excess of four four hundred actions per minute. That's six or seven a second per second. And it's like, mate, you you, you can't hit a drum that fast. Yeah, no. this is you know th th these guys are good. And they make mistakes, and that makes our job difficult. But at least the advantage in esports is that you're dealing with a digital product. So we have, you know, we have real data, <laughs> as opposed to in traditional sport where you're looking at a video of a guy doing something, going, "That was deliberate." That's much harder. Mm. You know, in esports we do have that advantage at least, which is why our uh, detection conviction or, or detection rate is much higher than traditional sport um, because we at least have digital evidence but it's tough it's very tough yeah um and just kind of like a final point about this topic and i think i'm going to try and move quite swiftly through the others just so i don't keep it too sure. long why was there no other follow-up and that's i think more the question that a lot of people have on their mind sure. of what oh, i appreciate that what, Look, why I, are we at like the two-year anniversary and we haven't heard anything about those 34 people and as i've mentioned before there were more than 34 people being investigated yes what like why haven't we got anything else from this it, it's a good question and i guess this comes down to me in a sense relying on people like you actually asking me this question because being proactive on old investigations when we've got a hundred new ones is, is a question of resources and time and focus. And we are, you know, a, a radically under-resourced organization relative to our workload. And so my focus individually is always on what are we doing now? Not on what did we do last week, last month, last year, which is a fault. I, I'm, I'm, I'm explaining uh, and excusing. That, that's not a good thing. But it is one that we're addressing now in terms of uh, resourcing. We need we need more people, and we need people who are in exactly the position you would need to identify the fact that we haven't updated. To say, hey, I've looked at the website, and we haven't done anything about this for six months, a year, whatever. Um, I don't have that luxury at a personal level, and neither do the few people who work for us yet. So, you know, bluntly the increase in resourcing and 
uh, both at a human and a, a, a money level, is what we need to serve the community in the way that the community deserves, right? In the meantime, I rely, as the community does, on guys like you asking me the question because I'm, pre I'm perfectly prepared to answer the question, but I don't sit day to day with my investigatory workload going, oh, yeah, perhaps I should revisit this thing that happened two years ago, which, you know, I, I'm perfectly, I hold up my hands to the fact that that's not satisfactory and we're, we're building towards what is satisfactory very rapidly. Okay, so it's just kind of that same old theme of we we've taken too much on and yeah. we don't have the funds to do it and something else cropped up. Okay, so something that I feel like might fall into that category again is the the massive coach bands, the massive coach bugs yeah. bands. Um kind of like 2022, 2021, you yeah. guys were saying that there's like a and Dexterta releases like a second coach bug. Yeah. And you guys like there's quotes being like sorry. Yeah. This yes. quote's being like, um, we basically are gonna have in like the next six, twelve months an increase in these bands. We've got these high profile yeah. people that'll be affected. And this was just before PGL and Twep, which is the major. And we yeah. did see some people affected three yeah. days before the major started. Correct. Zach, Peacemaker, Halley were all banned. Yeah. Pretty much immediately after the major, they all got unbanned. Mm-hmm. Firstly, just looking at that incident of PGL Major, from an outside perspective, it felt like something went wrong. And it felt like that because the Major was so close, you guys felt like you had to make a decision and it prompted you and it forced your hand a little bit. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Or like basically what went wrong? And I'll come on to like the, yeah. the, the future of Coach Bands after that. Yeah, sure. Um, look, my... My memory of the circumstances around the PGL major are might be a little bit woolly. Naturally, given, yeah. Given going back, um, but but the consistency from our point of view uh, in the really rests in the appeal process. Okay, and and this is something you need to understand is that the first we we've now got four separate bugs. the The first batch that everybody knows about was a. You know, everybody's seen it, right? You, you saw what's going on. There was a what what we would call strict liability as as a legal phrase, which is that if you were bugged uh, and the analysis uh, was done and made public, then you received a ban according to the matrix, right? Now, what what then happened is that certain coaches. Uh, some successfully appealed, some didn't. So you, you go, because that procedure was always offered, right? Is all the notices of charge that went to those guys basically said, look, here, here's how you, you, you come back at us. So we said, this is a strict liability offense. You're guilty just by virtue of having been bugged and, and so on. But if you've got something to, to say about that in an individual level, rather than group, then Here's the procedure. And some took advantage and some didn't. Um, and, but we established through those appeals a, a precedent for how those would be dealt with because they're dealt with independently of us by, by a, an independent chairman. So that, that went on. Then the unexpected thing happened, which I'm sure you're aware of, is that Valve then added the RMR uh, ban overlay, the, the major ban. And that really threw things up into the air because 
what what it exposed, um, which which was, yeah, and has, look, it still bugs me, but I think we've resolved this, is that the the concessions that we gave to coaches who had admitted their guilt up front, who had uh, assisted us with the investigation, or and in some circumstances where there were other factors, we gave them discounts, some of them really significant discounts on the sanction. So we said, this is how many demerit points you get, and we've applied 25% here, 25%, you know, for these, these various categories. Valve didn't recognize those discounts at all. So you ended up with an anomaly where, for example, we banned a player for uh, a coach for five months and a, and he ended up being banned for life or for five majors or, you know, for, for in my view, disproportionate uh, engagement with Vel-sponsored events, which even though the, the period for appeal had long passed, we then allowed appeals addressing that issue which was not an ESIC issue. That was, that's a valve issue. Um, anyway, as long story short, that um, what, what came up in the evidence that then emerged from the second batch of uh, the, the, the original coach bug, and then the two, now three new bugs that appeared since, was we needed to think not just about what the right thing to do for ESIC, you know, in terms of consistent with that first batch. But now, what's Valve going to do? And so, rather than putting out a whole bunch of uh, results, we wanted to be damn sure that we were on the same page as Valve. And that was a, and is, a long and difficult discussion that was only bottomed out, I would say, finally, by the time of the Rio Major. Because obviously, COVID hit in the meantime. So what, what the situation is now is that we have reviewed the second coach bug cases, which were primarily one-round cases, and decided that in the vast, vast majority of cases, we ought not to prosecute those players based on what had successfully appealed from the first batch of cases. What, what persuaded the appeal panel that these guys were either not guilty or were guilty but should have their sanction reduced for different reasons. Um, and when you look at the new cases in light of those sanction, those appeals, you, you come to a, a different result. Now, all of these cases, not all of them, many of these cases are still live. We've resolved the issue with, um, with Valve to the point where we agree. And then there's the but, which you raised initially, which is the PGL uh, major case, is in light of the Valve uh, ban, it was untenable for play for those guys to go to the major uh, when a, a significant number of coaches had already been banned by Valve from the major for exactly the same offense, right? So that we were, and I say under pressure because it was a factor, but it wasn't a determining factor. When you've got a whole bunch of guys saying, well, I'm, I'm, 
I've served my ESIC band, but I'm not allowed to coach at this major. These guys who did exactly the same thing as me uh, are coaching at the major, and that's not right. And there was a lot of background stuff going on between ESIC, Valve, PGL, and everybody else that meant those uh, those notices of charge and prosecutions went out um, in advance of the major for for exactly that reason of of equity and fairness with the, the first batch. Those guys then, of course, as you said, appealed those decisions based on the same criteria as had previously succeeded uh, and were able to persuade the uh, appeal um, the, the appeal chairman of the merits of their appeal, and we've seen the results of those. So it was procedurally correct, just phenomenally unfortunate in terms of timing, that the evidence from the second batch under which those guys were prosecuted came out so damn close to the major. I mean, look, it it was, sorry, set my dog out, Re regret, regrettable. And, and unfortunate in terms of timing, but there was very little that we were that we could do about that. It, um, it it's just the way that you know when the evidence came forward and what was possible to do. Okay, okay, and then so are we now that you've actually come on terms of uh, with Valve yep. and you've got all these like hundreds of thousands of cases to still be reviewed <laughs> thousands but yeah close to yeah yep. like are we gonna see a mass ban or is it gonna be more gradual like what is the aim for the future now with this because it yep. feels like there is still stuff going on there but is. we haven't had we haven't heard anything Yep. And that's kind of the thing, what like the communities that were like, okay, it feels like science going on, but what is it? Yeah. Okay. We're going to treat each of the bugs separately. Um, so the second batch of the first bug, <laughs> let's call it that. Um, there's a greatly reduced number of actual prosecutions going to happen. And those will only be for one, excuse me, for one round or more, or for more than one round. Um, because those have all, yeah, I, mean, I, I think they have all now been reviewed. Yeah, they have. I, I, I did a review. It's a lot running through each of those. Has anyone? And then we have two more. Yeah, I mean, it's literally a game by game. Has uh, anyone been banned? They, of the one rounders, no, but of others who were more than one round, uh, there will be bans. They are not banned yet, but they will be banned. So there are coaches right now playing yep. in, in the coaching competitive counter-strike that very, are going to be reviewed and be banned yes there are a very very few who i would you know that you would describe as active employed uh guys above sort of tier three but yes uh, there are guys who will be banned and similarly with the other two three bugs uh that that have now been exposed and we're going to do those in in batches uh, one that we described in our last press release is a serious uh, case because it, in, it indicates, not only indicates, it was a case of actually cheating. And what I mean by that is you could have been bugged, as many people have shown in, in appeal, and not cheated, right? Uh, 
either because it, the bug itself was facing somewhere that wasn't particularly useful or because as coach, you didn't pass on any information as a result of what you could see. Many coaches, as I'm sure you know, will actually during a competitive match, not even be at their computer. They might be behind the players or, or whatever, but there's all sorts of circumstances uh, that mean that bugged doesn't equal cheat, right? There's a lot of those, a lot of cases which Valve accepts, right? And, and they've accepted that evidence in, in a significant number of cases. Um, in the, what I would call, I tend to refer to as the director's bug. So the one that you can move around and look at whatever you want to look at, as opposed to a fixed camera position, that was used to cheat. And, and it's obviously direct evidence of coaches literally following gameplay using the bug to cheat. That is cheating. That's a far more serious offense that we're having to deal with as a cheating offense, one by one by one, based on individual match evidence. And that that's time intensive. Of course, those guys will be banned unless they are successfully able to provide some kind of defense, which it's actually hard to imagine what, what they might say, but they will, of course, be given that opportunity. And the other bug is more is similar to the original coach bug and will be treated in the same way with the matrix that we've had to adjust because of the valve issue. And all that really means is that any valve won't take account of any discount that is offered for post cheating, post bug um, activity a plea of guilty, a um, uh, assistance with the investigation, any of those sort of discounts Valve have no interest in. All Valve have an interest in, and, and I'm on the same page as them, is what's the demerit points? What What's the consequence of how many rounds and uh, how many matches and how many rounds were you bugged and did you exploit the bug? Those... But you can imagine the scale of this. Um, oh, yeah. You know, over, over 100 coaches. And I honestly can't even tell you how many matches. Hundreds, hundreds of matches that, that we, we have had to analyze uh, in, in this case. But that, that is, apart from one batch now, all done. So I'm hoping, and I'm not going to give you a timeline because I keep catching myself out on this, but yeah. I would say soon that we intend to start issuing those charges on a batch by batch basis okay that's wow uh that's a big hit of information i will say um yeah. but uh yeah i think i, I I'm, I'm gonna try round this out because i'm very conscious of taking up too sure. much of your time yeah. so just as a final uh question before i kind of conclude us hmm. every now and again we see something happen with uh in the na scene dust to us revealed an article uh piggy kiki the na gold uh, uh the eg gold women's player was accused of cheating and fairly substantial evidence hmm. nothing got investigated and yeah. these are like maybe at some stage like lower levels and yeah. a very specific scene that happened last weekend in the uk scene yeah. in our biggest open qualifier was stream sniping the team got removed from the qualifier right. and that was literally it. They are playing in a tournament tomorrow again. 
and they I, stream I wasn't aware of that. Oh uh, yeah, so like business. I, yeah. yeah, so I, my like kind of leading question is these, like, these smaller things of like you're focusing yeah. on these big top tier stuff. Yeah. What about this like maybe like regional like the the piggy kiki scene with mm. her being like you know like she's got a banned account on face it and then this like guy the team being removed because of stream sniping like how would yeah. you deal with maybe these like smaller situations yeah i mean obviously i've dealt with quite a lot of stream sniping cases historically and we have policies on this but to take a step above this kind of activity is it is it's essential for us from a jurisdictional point of view for the tournament organizer to either be a member of ESIC so that our policy actually applies, so that the anti-corruption code applies to the competition, or the TO has to request our assistance in dealing with the thing and give us jurisdiction. Because otherwise, it's you know, we, we have some ability to put out what we call a recommendation order, which is basically a public statement saying, this happened. Uh, we we recommend that you don't invite this team or allow them to play in your events. But we, we can't, because our policy didn't apply to the event, we, there's nothing we can do. That That's one part of the problem. So the more TOs and publishers that become members of ESIC, the wider our jurisdiction grows. I mean, that's the whole point is that Ideally, you want jurisdiction over all esports events because then we can be consistent in our actions. But until uh, these TOs and publishers see the value of joining ESIC, then whatever happens in their events is not something that we have any kind of direct control over. That's, that's part of the problem. But the other problem is the flow of information to us because, I, of course, I would seek to take action in a stream sniping case, at the very least issue a recommendation order. But if we we don't receive that information or those allegations, then we're totally reliant on somehow just picking up this information from whatever media sources reported or yeah. we're relying on somebody telling us, right? Is because you know how scattered the esports media is. For us to receive that information consistently and reliably is more or less impossible. We we need somebody. So the example you've given, I, I honestly knew nothing about. I, That's I, fair. Yeah, it was more not yeah. like trying to catch you out. It was more yeah. of like a this is happening. What yeah. is it? Just like a, a an idea, like a position where because. You want a governing body by everyone. Yeah. You get almost undermined by these like people yeah. who aren't within you. And that was kind of more I was like pointing out, yeah. not being like, ha, how dare you not no, know no, about no, this no. one I, small I, I understand. And yeah. I, I didn't take it that way at all. <laughs> I it's something that really worries me is that you need consistency, coherence, reliability across the scene. But that's you know, we've got to this point over seven and a half years. And, and I said at the beginning, there's a long way to go because you need engagement from everybody at every level because, in fact, the vast majority of problems are at the lower level. Yet You're not going to get a problem at Katowice. You're not going to get a problem in Cologne. You're not going to get a problem at the Paris Major. It, you, you'd be stunned if, if something like mm. that happened. Where you're getting problems is, you know, 99% in online yeah. competition at tier two, three, four. And, and that applies to every game. You know, we're, we'll shortly announce a couple of FIFA bans. 
Um, we've got three of those to, and so we do operate at a lower level. <laughs> okay, it's you know, but we we are highly reliant on somebody telling us that this stuff's going on. Um, yeah. If it's not a member reporting it to us, which is, you know, if if this was, for example, a I don't know a, a blast game or an ESL game, or you you rely on their admin or their head referee or our liaison person phoning me up going, Hey, we've got a problem. And then we, we deal with it together, but, you know, relying on, on, uh, uh, spotting a media report is, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So yeah, the more exactly. people telling us about these things, the better, honestly, that, and, uh, and, and letting us know, because if we can, of course we'll deal with them. Yeah. Okay. And um, just so, I think I I I, I think I'll end it off here. Like I and I could honestly talk to you for hours, and I I'd love to honestly I'd love to have this again in like six months and just like yeah. sit down and talk to you again because I feel like there's so much stuff that I could talk to you about because I they're like there's and, a lot happening. I'd love to tell yeah. you about in terms of the big picture structure resources that that are changing dramatically over the next six months. Um, Is there anything you can share within reasons, that then? But yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you can share then? Um, no, not yet. I mean, yeah, let's talk in. Let's talk at the end of the year because I think. Okay. I think you'll be surprised by uh, what's happening. Every so structure within everything ESIC. comes down to resources. It's how much time have you got in a day, and how many people have you got, and that all comes down to money, because there are so many cool things and good things and helpful things that we could be doing, and so many cases that we could be concluding. Uh, if we had the resources to do that and uh and and that is that's what we're addressing at the moment so i'm 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 confident that a a, a discussion around you know kind of christmas time early new year would be a very very different discussion okay that is a very cryptic way to end it and i think just on on top of that mm -hmm. i guess this leads into like this is my final point lack of communication and i think that's been the real issue for people yeah. is all of these cases of kind of like up in the air and isik has just disappeared mm. in like I, I it's unfair to say but well, no, a I lot understand. of people yeah. yeah like a lot of people just like a lot of people wouldn't know what isik is because of the lack of communication and they'd only know them at this oh they came in banned these coaches and left and it's like why have for the last year year and a half there has kind of been that lack of public yeah. like everything i'd give you two answers to that i i've partly covered this already of course but yeah uh the one thing that people possibly are vaguely aware of but haven't quite grasped is that covid and the move to all online for those two, particularly the two years before we started getting back into a couple of lands. In the first, in 2020, there was a close to 300% increase in the number of suspicious and unusual betting reports to us. And bluntly, I was overwhelmed by that. I had a caseload that up to the beginning of 2020, I could cope with. It wasn't great, but it was manageable. Uh, I think at that point I had 46 outstanding investigations, which I know sounds like a lot, but it's, it's a lot. 
but it's it, it was manageable. I had a timeline. By the end of 2020, we had 126. That is not manageable. Oh, okay. um, and that was a, a further 106 in 2021. Um, and then 2022 reduced to about another 100. So it's reducing, which is great. But that that exponential uh, effect of COVID was basically overwhelmed me as the primary investigator and then us as an organization just from a resources point of view recovering from that has been difficult so we had to prioritize and one of the things that definitely slacked off was uh, proactive communication uh, which is of course something that i'm now trying to address going forward because it's it's not ideal and i'm obviously conscious that our reputation amongst the casual unengaged community uh, declined as a, as a result and i understand that um and and we're addressing that so yeah it's 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 a question of kind of what happened and understanding that and then us climbing out from under the under the overwhelm as an organization coming up for air and being able to actually look at some planning engaging with our bigger members particularly efg have been massively helpful over the last six months blast you know the the engagement with the top end has given us some breathing space and we're very grateful for their continued support because otherwise honestly there would be nothing uh so yeah i you know acknowledging the need to improve in this area 100 percent uh, but we are uh, and will over the course of the next months but but yeah, and in a sense, it's of course an excuse, but I'd like to think of it as an explanation. Is okay. if people understood the effect of COVID on the e the broad esports scene, um, beyond their game community, uh, they they'd realize that that it was unprecedented. The way COVID was unprecedented for all of us, but it had a gigantic impact on us that we're still trying to recover from. Okay. Wow. That was a very insightful interview and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Ian. Um, I cannot wait to see what more ESIC has to do. And yeah. I'm, I'm very keen now. You were saying science changing at the end of the year. That has made yeah. me very, um, like it's, it's just plucked something in my brain. I'm, I'm very inquisitive now as yeah. to what's happening, but um, you'll, you'll see a lot of stuff and I'd be very happy to talk about it. So of course there'll be, releases when individual Press aspects release, yeah. of what we're doing happen but i think that there's a big picture that'd be well worth talking about in a few months okay that is a big picture i will right. make sure i contact you about but i don't want to keep it too long i'm about further ado thank you so much for joining me it's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure and for everyone thank you so much and we'll make sure to see you next week for another interview on the insight channel